Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below. Chapter 7 of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Elizabeth Clett, Houston, Texas, January 2008 Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, written by herself. By Harriet Jacobs, written under the pseudonym Linda Brent. Chapter Seven, The Lover Why does the slave ever love? Why allow the tendrils of the heart to twine around objects which may at any moment be wrenched away by the hand of violence? When separations come by the hand of death, the pious soul can bow in resignation, and say, Not my will, but thine be done, O Lord. But when the ruthless hand of man strikes the blow, regardless of the misery he causes, it is hard to be submissive. I did not reason thus when I was a young girl. Youth will be youth. I loved, and I indulged the hope that the dark clouds around me would turn out a bright lining. I forgot that in the land of my birth the shadows are too dense for light to penetrate. A land where laughter is not mirth, nor thought the mind, nor words a language, nor e'en men mankind, where cries reply to curses, shrieks to blows, and each is tortured in his separate hell. There was in the neighborhood a young colored carpenter, a free-born man. We had been well acquainted in childhood, and frequently met together afterwards. We became mutually attached, and he proposed to marry me. I loved him with all the ardor of a young girl's first love. But when I reflected that I was a slave, and that the laws gave no sanction to the marriage of such, my heart sank within me. My lover wanted to buy me, but I knew that Dr. Flint was too willful and arbitrary a man to consent to that arrangement. From him I was sure of experiencing all sort of opposition, and I had nothing to hope from my mistress. She would have been delighted to have got rid of me, but not in that way. It would have relieved her mind of a burden if she could have seen me sold to some distant state. But if I was married near home I should be just as much in her husband's power as I had previously been for the husband of a slave has no power to protect her. Moreover, my mistress, like many others, seemed to think that slaves had no right to any family ties of their own, that they were created merely to wait upon the family of the mistress. I once heard her abuse a young slave-girl, who told her that a colored man wanted to make her his wife. "'I will have you peeled and pickled, my lady,' said she, "'if I ever hear you mention that subject again.' Do you suppose that I will have you tending my children with the children of that nigger?" The girl to whom she said this had a mulatto child, of course not acknowledged by its father. The poor black man who loved her would have been proud to acknowledge his helpless offspring. Many and anxious were the thoughts I revolved in my mind. I was at a loss what to do. Above all things I was desirous to spare my lover the insults that had cut so deeply into my own soul. I talked with my grandmother about it, and partly told her my fears. I did not dare to tell her the worst. 
She had long suspected all was not right, and if I confirmed her suspicions I knew a storm would rise that would prove the overthrow of all my hopes. This love-dream had been my support through many trials, and I could not bear to run the risk of having it suddenly dissipated. There was a lady in the neighbourhood, a particular friend of Dr. Flint's, who often visited the house. I had a great respect for her, and she had always manifested a friendly interest in me. Grandmother thought she would have great influence with the doctor. I went to this lady and told her my story. I told her I was aware that my lover's being a free-born man would prove a great objection, but he wanted to buy me, and if Dr. Flint would consent to that arrangement, I felt sure he would be willing to pay any reasonable price. She knew that Mrs. Flint disliked me. Therefore I ventured to suggest that perhaps my mistress would approve of my being sold, as that would rid her of me. The lady listened with kindly sympathy, and promised to do her utmost to promote my wishes. She had an interview with the doctor, and I believe she pleaded my cause earnestly. But it was all to no purpose. How I dreaded my master now! Every minute I expected to be summoned to his presence. But the day passed, and I heard nothing from him. The next morning a message was brought to me. Master wants you in his study. I found the door ajar, and I stood a moment gazing at the hateful man who claimed a right to rule me, body and soul. I entered and tried to appear calm. I did not want him to know how much my heart was bleeding. He looked fixedly at me, with an expression which seemed to say, I have half a mind to kill you on the spot. At last he broke the silence, and that was a relief to both of us. "'So you want to be married, do you?' said he. "'And to a free nigger?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Well, I'll soon convince you whether I am your master, or the nigger fellow you honour so highly. If you must have a husband, you may take up with one of my slaves.' "'What a situation I should be in, as the wife of one of his slaves, even if my heart had been interested.' I replied, don't you suppose, sir, that a slave can have some preference about marrying? Do you suppose that all men are alike to her? Do you love this nigger? said he, abruptly. Yes, sir. How dare you tell me so? he exclaimed in great wrath. After a slight pause he added, I supposed you thought more of yourself, that you felt above the insults of such puppies. I replied, If he is a puppy, I am a puppy for we are both of the negro race. It is right and honourable for us to love each other. The man you call a puppy never insulted me, sir, and he would not love me if he did not believe me to be a virtuous woman." He sprang upon me like a tiger, and gave me a stunning blow. It was the first time he had ever struck me, and fear did not enable me to control my anger. When I had recovered a little from the effects, I exclaimed, "'You have struck me for answering you honestly. How I despise you!" There was silence for some minutes. Perhaps he was deciding what should be my punishment, or perhaps he wanted to give me time to reflect on what I had said, and to whom I had said it. Finally he asked, "'Do you know what you have said?' "'Yes, sir. But your treatment drove me to it.' "'Do you know that I have a right to do as I like with you? That I can kill you, if I please?' You have tried to kill me, and I wish you had, but you have no right to do as you like with me." "'Silence!' he exclaimed, in a thundering voice. "'By heavens, girl, you forget yourself too far! Are you mad? If you are, I will soon bring you to your senses. 
Do you think any other master would bear what I have borne from you this morning? Many masters would have killed you on the spot. How would you like to be sent to jail for your insolence?" "'I know I have been disrespectful, sir,' I replied. "'But you drove me to it. I couldn't help it. As for the jail, there would be more peace for me there than there is here.' "'You deserve to go there,' said he, and to be under such treatment, that you would forget the meaning of the word peace. It would do you good. It would take some of your high notions out of you. But I am not ready to send you there yet notwithstanding your ingratitude for all my kindness and forbearance. You have been the plague of my life. I have wanted to make you happy, and I have been repaid with the basest ingratitude. But though you have proved yourself incapable of appreciating my kindness, I will be lenient towards you, Linda. I will give you one more chance to redeem your character. If you behave yourself and do as I require, I will forgive you, and treat you as I have always done. But if you disobey me, I will punish you as I would the meanest slave on my plantation. Never let me hear that fellow's name mentioned again. If I ever know of your speaking to him, I will cowhide you both, and if I catch him lurking about my premises, I will shoot him as soon as I would a dog. Do you hear what I say? I'll teach you a lesson about marriage and free niggers. Now go, and let this be the last time I have occasion to speak to you on this subject. Reader. Did you ever hate? I hope not. I never did but once, and I trust I never shall again. Somebody has called it the atmosphere of hell, and I believe it is so. For a fortnight the doctor did not speak to me. He thought to mortify me, to make me feel that I had disgraced myself by receiving the honourable addresses of a respectable coloured man, in preference to the base proposals of a white man. But though his lips disdained to address me, his eyes were very loquacious. No animal ever watched its prey more narrowly than he watched me. He knew that I could write, though he had failed to make me read his letters, and he was now troubled lest I should exchange letters with another man. After a while he became weary of silence, and I was sorry for it. One morning as he passed through the hall to leave the house, he contrived to thrust a note into my hand. I thought I had better read it, and spare myself the vexation of having him read it to me. It expressed regret for the blow he had given me, and reminded me that I myself was wholly to blame for it. He hoped I had become convinced of the injury I was doing myself, by incurring his displeasure. He wrote that he had made up his mind to go to Louisiana, that he should take several slaves with him, and intended I should be one of the number. My mistress would remain where she was, therefore I should have nothing to fear from that quarter. If I merited kindness from him, he assured me that it would be lavishly bestowed. He begged me to think over the matter, and answer the following day. The next morning I was called to carry a pair of scissors to his room. I laid them on the table, with the letter beside them. He thought that it was my answer, and did not call me back. I went as usual to attend my young mistress to and from school. He met me in the street, and ordered me to stop at his office on my way back. When I entered, he showed me his letter, and asked me why I had not answered it. I replied, I am your daughter's property, and it is in your power to send me, or take me, wherever you please. He said he was very glad to find me so willing to go, and that we should start early in the autumn. He had a large practice in the town, and I rather thought he had made up the story merely to frighten me. However that might be, I was determined that I would never go to Louisiana with him. Summer passed away, 
and early in the autumn Dr. Flint's eldest son was sent to Louisiana to examine the country, with a view to emigrating. That news did not disturb me. I knew very well that I should not be sent with him. That I had not been taken to the plantation before this time was owing to the fact that his son was there. He was jealous of his son, and jealousy of the overseer had kept him from punishing me by sending me into the fields to work. Is it strange that I was not proud of these protectors? As for the overseer, he was a man for whom I had less respect than I had for a bloodhound. Young Mr. Flint did not bring back a favorable report of Louisiana, and I heard no more of that scheme. Soon after this, my lover met me at the corner of the street, and I stopped to speak to him. Looking up, I saw my master watching us from his window. I hurried home, trembling with fear. I was sent for immediately to go to his room. He met me with a blow. "'When is mistress to be married?' said he, in a sneering tone. A shower of oaths and imprecations followed. How thankful I was that my lover was a free man, that my tyrant had no power to flog him for speaking to me in the street. Again and again I revolved in my mind how all this would end. There was no hope that the doctor would consent to sell me on any terms. He had an iron will, and was determined to keep me and to conquer me. My lover was an intelligent and religious man. Even if he could have obtained permission to marry me while I was a slave, the marriage would give him no power to protect me from my master. It would have made him miserable to witness the insults I should have been subjected to. And then, if we had children, I knew they must follow the condition of the mother. What a terrible blight that would be on the heart of a free, intelligent father! For his sake, I felt that I ought not to link his fate with my own unhappy destiny. He was going to Savannah to see about a little property left him by an uncle, and hard as it was to bring my feelings to it, I earnestly entreated him not to come back. I advised him to go to the free states, where his tongue would not be tied, and where his intelligence would be of more avail to him. He left me, still hoping the day would come when I could be bought. With me the lamp of hope had gone out. The dream of my girlhood was over. I felt lonely and desolate. Still I was not stripped of all. I still had my good grandmother, and my affectionate brother. When he put his arms round my neck, and looked into my eyes as if to read there the troubles I dared not tell, I felt that I still had something to love. But even that pleasant emotion was chilled by the reflection that he might be torn from me at any moment, by some sudden freak of my master. If he had known how we loved each other, I think he would have exulted in separating us. We often planned together how we could get to the north. But, as William remarked, such things are easier said than done. My movements were very closely watched, and we had no means of getting any money to defray our expenses. As for Grandmother, she was strongly opposed to her children's undertaking any such project. She had not forgotten poor Benjamin's sufferings, and she was afraid that if another child tried to escape, he would have a similar or a worse fate. To me, nothing seemed more dreadful than my present life. I said to myself, William must be free. He shall go to the North, and I will follow him. Many a slave sister has formed the same plans. End of chapter 7 Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Marrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut, 
and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book, The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut, and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below.